400 billion stars out there just in our galaxy alone. If only one out of a million of those had planets, all right, and if just one out of a million of those had life, and if just one out of a million of those had intelligent life, there would be literally millions of civilizations out there. Well, if there wasn't, it'd be an awful waste of space. The world prepares to make contact with extraterrestrials after a scientist discovers intelligent life far from Earth. Listen as we talk about impressing Steven Spielberg, what Leonardo da Vinci didn't know, and the alien version of Jackass. Then we find out if 1997's Contact stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Test of Time. I'm James Brief, and joining me, as always, is my buddy, my pal, my good old director of a podcast that I'm part of, Alan Noah. That's me. I like it when you say nice things about me. What should I call you if I'm the director? You can be the best boy. The key grip. You got it. You can be the key grip. You are in charge of the lighting. I mean, you turned on the light that's above our heads right now. And isn't the best boy also something in lighting? Yes. Who so, works for the key grip? Uh, maybe. I'm not totally sure, to be honest. Hmm. But you have turned on all of the lights in your apartment tonight, so we are well lit. So good job. I'm lighting manager. There you go. Well done. So today we're going to be talking about Contact, which is a movie that I will admit I put it on the list because it's the 25th anniversary and yada, 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 I love anniversaries. But I also know that you're excited about this movie because you're a hashtag space nerd. I don't know if that's a real hashtag, but it could be. Well, we all are Stardust, Al. So we're all in space and in to space, perhaps? Uh, no. No, 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 no. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that this was not the first, second, third, fourth, fifth time that you've seen this movie? No, I'd say it's probably um, the third or fourth. I, I okay. saw it in theaters. I owned a Bare Bones DVD from like, it was one of the first DVDs. I just yeah, saw it as a DVD. I'm like, oh, Contact, I like that movie. Uh, had you ever seen this film before? I had, and I had only seen it one time prior to rewatching it now for the podcast. And I didn't remember a ton. I basically just remembered the ending. And honestly, I think I remembered the ending more from South Park. You remember when Mr. Garrison hates this movie and he talks about like how much he hated the ending? Yeah, yeah I totally remember. You know, let's just play a clip of that. Uh, spoiler for the ending of the film. Right. Did you ever see that movie, Contact? Oh, stop! That movie was terrible! Waited through that entire movie to see the alien and it was her goddamn father. 
It's not really true. I mean, it's the Mr. Garrison version of the truth. Yes, yes. So that's how he would take a film like this. Right. But I'm guessing you were still excited to talk about this movie now. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember when this film came out and it was Robert Zemeckis. Uh, Of course, for our listeners, what is Robert Zemeckis most famous for? Well, the Back to the Future trilogy. We've also reviewed Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Forrest Gump. And I think that's all that we have done. I know there are a couple other movies of his that we want to get to. Yeah, and one thing he's become known for is he is cutting edge, not just uh, visual effects, because there's a lot of people that are known for that, but he is known as some cutting edge filmmaking techniques. Like Forrest Gump, no one had ever done that thing where you could uh, put someone in an old reel of JFK. And in this film, he did some things that were pretty, wow, that's pretty cool, but some things that are very, very subtle. Like he did an impossible shot, a shot that was always deemed as in a shot that you could never film in television or film, yet he did it for the first time. I don't know if you caught it. Are you talking about like the big zoom out at the beginning? No, that's a fantastic shot. The zoom out from this girl all the way to the edge of the universe. But there is a shot that just shows his skill. There is a shot of Ellie, a young Ellie when she's nine years old. And she slams a mirror door shot, like one of those uh, you know cabinet mirrors in the, in the bathroom. And that is an impossible shot because if you notice, whenever someone's in front of the mirror in a movie, it's always at an angle and they're a little bit to the side because obviously you don't want to see the camera behind them. Sure. And there is an amazing shot in the beginning of this film when Ellie's father is dying and she runs upstairs to get the uh, medicine from presumably the bathroom cabinet and she closes the mirror and you see her there and it's an impossible shot. And what they had done is they basically filmed this young actress running down the hallway. And when she closes the mirror, she's not actually closing a mirror door. She's closing a blue screen mm-hmm. on a cabinet. And it, it sounds so simple, but it's the way to do this shot that had never been done before. And it's done so seamlessly, you can't even tell. You know, it's funny that you say that. Now I feel like if I had watched the scene looking for that, I would have been like, oh, that is very interesting. But... I didn't pay attention to it. And in this movie that has a lot of visual effect shots, like, you know, working so hard on the medicine cabinet seems kind of funny. But okay, cool. I can appreciate that he did something new and unique. Oh, and that is the kind of thing that in my head canon, he's showing an early screening to Steven Spielberg. They work together on a lot of things. And Spielberg immediately sees that and kind of looks at him and goes, well done. That one was for the film school people. Gotcha. So let's remind people about what this movie is all about. Uh, It's about Dr. Eleanor Arroway, played by Jodie Foster, and she's an astronomer who has dedicated her career to searching for aliens. After many years of finding nothing, she detects a signal from a distant star. The signal seems to prove the existence of intelligent life, and encoded in the message are blueprints for building a huge machine. Dr. Arroway believes the machine will send one person to meet the aliens, and she is ultimately selected to be Earth's ambassador and the person to make contact. contact. I mean, I I feel like that was a little aggressive. I mean, it's like to make contact. Contact. Yeah, it's like a little nicer. Uh, But when this movie came out, I would imagine it did fairly well at the box office, but I honestly don't remember. 
Well, the movie did okay at the American box office. It opened at number two on uh, July 11th, 1997 with $20 million on its way to $100 million. So it had a five times multiplier. That was a really, really busy weekend. The number one film that weekend that Contact didn't quite knock out, it was the number one from the previous weekend. And it was a film that both the movie and the title of the movie were the number one movie and song of the week. Uh, 1997. I'll give you a hint. I believe one of the lyrics in this in this song is, "Woo." Um, I don't know. Drawing a blank. Who ruled the July Fourth weekend in the late 90s? Oh, uh, it was Independence Day. Well, no, that was 96. Wild Wild West. Close, close, close. You're almost there. Men in Black. There you go. Okay. Right. I think it was Independence Day, then Men in Black, then Wild Wild West. <laughs> that, that's right. And uh, number three, uh, Contact Beat Face Off. That was in its third weekend. Right, which we also talked about because of the 25th anniversary. And number five, that was a movie starring, I'm not sure if it's Dylan McDermott or Dermot Mulrooney. I'm just joking. That's an old joke, but it's uh, Dylan McDermott. Oh, um... Uh, My Best Friend's Wedding? That's correct. Oh, so we've done a lot of these movies. We also did number seven, um, well, where we found out um, why all the dinosaurs died out. Uh, Batman and Robin? Yes, when Mr. Freeze yells, Hey, Batman, why did the dinosaurs die out? Because of the Ice Age! And I think he fired his ice laser. (laughs) That's not true, though, right? I mean, that's not what killed the dinosaurs. The Ice Age had absolutely nothing to do with it. No, unless the asteroid that crashed into the Yucatan has been renamed Ice Age. It has not. It has not, as far as I know. You know, this film was actually based on a novel by uh, Carl Sagan, the late Dr. Carl Sagan. You're probably familiar with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, right? Sure, yeah. Carl Sagan was probably our parents' generation, Neil deGrasse Tyson. He was a professor of astronomy at Cornell University, Mm -hmm. and he used to go regularly on The Tonight Show, the same way that uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, used to go on The Colbert Show a lot, and now he goes everywhere. But um, he was famous for going on The Carson Show in the 70s and 80s. Carson used to do an impression of him. Then Carl Sagan, I think he denied saying it, but uh, Johnny Carson used to always call him the guy who says, billions and billions because he'd always talk about uh, stars billions and billions of miles away and there's billions and billions of stars and this is the kind of stuff that was a little heavier for uh, you know a midnight comedy show he was also a real astronomer he was the, one of the heads of the Voyager space probe that was sent out to uh, uh, to interstellar space it was the first time we saw Jupiter Saturn uh, Uranus and Neptune on these twin probes it was the first time you saw Uranus uh, that that humanity did see the seventh planet from the sun, uh, yes. Um, <laughs> and an inspiration for this novel that he wrote, Contact, on the Voyager space probe, there is a record, a solid gold record, like a vinyl record on the spacecraft. It's called The Sounds of Earth, and it has hello in like 50 languages, nature sounds. It has uh, Johnny Be Good on there. Nice. And it has uh, this woman, Andrewian, Dr. Sagan's uh, wife. It has her brain waves, actually. So she did, I guess, an EEG. Apparently, she said she was meditating and thinking of love and, and a lot of stuff. But these things were sent out into interstellar space with a cover on the record that shows like a scientific map to get to Earth and where we came from, who we are, and that we're scientific creatures. 
And out of this came this idea for this novel because we basically have been sending signals into space for almost a century now. There's this joke on uh, Futurama that uh, they're way behind us, some of these aliens, because they're only getting some of the television signals from uh, 20th century. My favorite line maybe in Futurama is when one of the aliens, he's watching Friends, and he simply asks... Why doesn't Ross, the largest of the friends, simply eat the others? It's not one of the aliens. It's Lur from Omicron Persei 8. That's correct. I am currently going through Futurama with my kids, and they love it. And I love Lur. Lur is great. Um, right, so there is some basis of this science fiction plot in science reality, there is SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. That is a real thing. Do you remember when we were in college? That was like one of the first uh, crowd mainframing that there was something called SETI at home. No. If you put on your screensaver, which was like a big thing in the 90s, it showed a little screensaver, but you were helping to decode signals from space. Now that you say that, it does sound vaguely familiar. I'm sure I didn't do it because I was too busy not illegally downloading songs from Napster. Yeah, that's true. But you were probably using Winamp, which really kicks the llama's ass. You just love saying that. Did the music from this film sound familiar? No, I saw that it was Alan Silvestri, who I know is in your list of top favorite Alans. Nowhere near me, obviously. Right? Right? Of, of course not. Of course not. He's a really famous composer. And when I first heard the music, I was like, this is the Forrest Gump theme. And it is uh, Alan Silvestri, who's who's known for doing a lot of stuff with Robert Zemeckis. One film by him that uh, I'm actually really excited to, to see, because it was a blockbuster film from 1984. First film by Robert Zemeckis that's almost completely forgotten by the zeitgeist. Do you know what his first film was? No, what's that? Romancing the Stone. Yeah, we've had that on the list for a while, and uh, we should do it. We should definitely do that movie. Yeah, it's definitely on the list. And there's also a sequel, The Jewel of the Nile. Right, I've heard of that. I remember that because as a kid, I remember thinking that was so confusing that a movie had a sequel that had nothing to do with the title of the first film. Right, yeah, they wouldn't do that now. Now it would be Romancing the Stone, colon, Jewel of the Nile. But so this movie is about the search for extraterrestrial life, but it is also really about science versus religion. That is a major theme of this movie. And I remember when we talked about Forrest Gump, which you mentioned because, you know, Robert Zemeckis and Alan Silvestri too, but the thing that I really liked about Forrest Gump was that that movie has a theme about fate versus free will and about the fear of death. And those themes in that movie are a little bit below the surface, more so the fear of death, the fate versus free will ones, a, a little bit more apparent. But in this movie, this theme of religion versus science is really, really at the forefront. And it kind of beats you over the head with it. And that kind of pissed me off a little bit. And I think the reason that I feel that way is because I don't think these two things are mutually exclusive. And the movie really pairs them as opposite. Like you are either a person who believes in science and not religion, like Dr. Arroway, 
or you are a person who believes in religion and maybe not so much science like Palmer Joss, played by Matthew McConaughey, who is, you know, a man of the cloth without the cloth, I think he says. And I don't know, I personally, and I think a lot of other people feel this way too, that like, yes, I believe in God and a higher power and something, and also science is real. Like, I think that's not a completely bonkers, out-of-left-field belief system. That's an incredibly fair criticism of this film, and one that I absolutely have uh, as well. And I'll answer it in two ways. First, I'm going to say that that is one big difference between this and the novel. You know, Carl Sagan was, uh, he was a scientist, absolutely. He wrote a brilliant book called The Demon Haunted World, and he basically predicted our entire uh, current state of people doubting science and, and everything, and he was very much a skeptic of people that, uh, you know, would believe things without any evidence. But he was not Richard Dawkins. He was not one of, one of these guys that is anti-religion. And actually, this novel was very much his way of coming together with this idea of faith being something you don't necessarily know because it's fact, but you still believe in it. And the book really did get to that. And I would make an argument that the movie does try to do that because Ellie, uh, Jodie Foster's character, she does go through some kind of space-time wormhole and she is very scientific about it. And as far as she knows, there is zero proof that it happened. But in the end, even her as a scientist, it happened and you just have to believe me. It's okay if you don't. But the movie tries to show that, oh, okay, it's not necessarily what the Vatican or this particular denomination of a church says it is, but maybe we're not as smart as we think we are. And Carl Sagan's book basically has that idea that, you know, things that we like marvel that a 12th century person didn't know about, or even someone brilliant like Leonardo da Vinci, he had no idea about dinosaurs and uh, microbiology and anything like that, electricity even. We should at least be able to acknowledge that we are incredibly ignorant about something, and it's probably, we would consider it, quote-unquote, God, but it probably isn't actually, you know, the Ten Commandments kind of guy, but he acknowledged that there's a lot more out there that we can't just say uh, arrogantly that we can understand, even if we believe it. To me, I think the best line about faith in this movie is when Dr. Arroway is talking with Joss, and he's trying to make a case for God existing, even though he can't prove it. And he says to her, did you love your father? And she says, yes, of course. And he says, prove it. And she's kind of speechless because how do you prove that? And I really, really like that line. And I think this movie does do a good job in the end of letting the audience know what Zemeckis's point of view is, which is that science and religion can coexist and you can believe in science and you can have some faith. And again, that's how I feel, but I do sort of hate the way that the movie kind of beats you over the head with that throughout the movie when they're trying to decide who's going to be the ambassador on this mission to make contact. Joss reveals in this like committee meeting that Dr. Arroway is an atheist and then she's basically disqualified for that because 95% of the world's population believes in God in some form. And I actually Googled that because I was like, that can't be true. Certainly not in Europe today. 
Uh, I don't really know how accurate it is, but when I Googled how much of population is atheists, the first thing that popped up is approximately 7% of the world's population are atheists or agnostic. Google uh, Europe. How Just much of Europe population? Is atheist. Uh, according to the first thing that pops up on Google, 17% of the European population is atheist as of 2019. Or no, it says non-believer agnostic is 17%. Atheist is another 10%. What's the difference between non-believer and atheist? Yeah, that I'm not sure. I know the difference in atheist is there is no God and agnostic is uh, there's no way of knowing. Like there is something, I don't know what it is. No, agnosticism is not saying there is something. It's basically you're not making a difference either way. Atheism is declaring that there is none. Gotcha, gotcha. Agnostic is it cannot be confirmed nor denied, basically. Yeah, basically. I mean, it's a big umbrella, agnosticism. Gotcha, gotcha. But even still, I just feel like that being the disqualifying thing for this woman is kind of bullshit. Do you think bullshit or do you think unrealistic? Really? Do you really think that's unrealistic? Well, I guess that depends on who this committee is made up of and what their motivations are. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I think it's unrealistic that the scientist who discovered the signal in the first place would also then be chosen to be the ambassador. I feel like that's kind of a stretch. You have one person looking at the data and then you would have someone else be the ambassador. I just can't really imagine that that would be the same person. Only because she would probably be very famous uh, yeah. in, this, in this world. Uh, but I really think if you had read the novel, you would really like the Palmer Joss character because when we say this man of the cloth, we really should make a distinction here. There is a character uh, played by Rob Lowe, and this guy is one of those, uh, let's just call it the conservative founding families of America, you know, one of those kind of guys. Right. And this is not Palmer Joss. Matthew McConaughey is really well cast as this role. I'd almost call him like a hippie uh, preacher in the novel. So he was a young, good-looking guy. And uh, his character is, if you're religious, that doesn't mean you're like these uh, super conservative people today that would almost be anti-science. Right. I do just want to say that I did like the character of Joss and Matthew McConaughey's portrayal of him. Just because you said, like, if you read the book, you would like him. Like, I like him fine without having read the book. Well, I'm saying things like, did you love your father? Prove it. Like, now you're going to get a lot more of it. It's, it's a novel. Right. I get it. So Rob Lowe plays a character who is religious and against this whole mission to make contact with the aliens. And there's also another character who's more extreme, played by... Uh, one of the Buseys, uh, which one? Jake Busey. Jake Busey, yes, thank you. I knew he was a Busey. I forgot which one. Uh, but he is like the leader of this cult, and he hates this idea of going to space and talking with aliens because that's not God's will. And the first time you see him, you know this guy's going to be trouble. And he ultimately does a suicide bombing and destroys the machine that's supposed to send someone to space. And the thing about that is that the way this movie sort of portrays that character is that he's kind of a lone wolf. Like, he's a leader of a cult, and it is a fringe part of the population that would do something so extreme as to sabotage this mission. Meanwhile, the rest of the people of the planet of Earth are 
all on board to make contact, to talk to these aliens. And yeah, there's some extreme wackadoodles, but they are not mainstream. And I have to say, watching this movie now, after two years of COVID, I don't know that I buy that. Not that there wouldn't be extremists, but that there wouldn't be a fuckload more of them. Especially with the internet and all the conspiracy theories Uh about this. And the interesting thing is that there's someone from the military who's like, we shouldn't get other countries involved. This is a national security issue. And Dr. Arroway is like, it's a signal from space. Anyone can get this. So I feel like today the signal would be sent out. Like people would have the signal or they would demand the signal or there would be some country that would say, here it is, folks. Like, we're going to give it to you. And right. Maybe Lithuania or some, you know, not huge global superpower, but someone would have it. Someone would leak it. Well, it's it's basically because there's something called the Deep Space Network, which is a bunch of radio dishes around the world so that there's always a continuous upstream from either our probes that are out in the solar system or, you know, just trying to read something from a, a pulsar or whatever. And this would be chaos. You're absolutely correct. It's very interesting because the first signal that we get from the aliens, they figure out that it's actually a television signal. Basically, the first television signal that was ever made was at the 1936 World's Fair or the Olympics. And it was Adolf Hitler trying to show off the superiority of German technology. And he broadcasts uh, some clip that says, welcome to the 1936 World Games. And this technically is our first ambassador of humanity to to space. I read that that's not necessarily true. Correct. It's not necessarily true, but it's a lot more fun than some guy in Bell Lab, you know, uh, showing off the wall. Right, right, right. And, you know, again, thinking about it from a 2022 lens, if that was the first video message that we got from outer space that they got this message that we sent out and they sent it back, then that would be really, really good news for neo-Nazis. And you do see that in the movie. There's like, you know, some people who are like, Hitler was an alien and this is, you know, great news for us neo-Nazis. But again, the movie kind of glosses over that. I feel like if it happened today, there would be a much bigger contingency of people worshiping the Hitler aliens and You know, it's unfortunate that that's what I think, but given the events of the past few years, I don't think that's really out of line. Absolutely not. You know, it would stray into a lot of different subplots if the movie wanted to go there, but James Wood's character, he is this skeptical government agent. They decode that it is um, a television signal, but within the television signal that they send back to us, acknowledging that they know we're intelligent, they also sent us these blueprints for some kind of machine. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really cool about how James Wood's character was like, how do we know this isn't a Trojan horse? Like, whenever they detect a signal, they send out this beam and we just blow ourselves up. And I thought that was really smart. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty smart thing to, to think. And, you know, it's his job to be thinking as a defensive person. So it could just open the doorway to their army. It could be a bomb. It could be anything. 
That's true. I mean, my naive point of view is more like Dr. Arroway's of like, why would they do that? What's the point? And and I get it. They could be conquerors. Who the hell knows? What if they were teenagers doing lulls, you know? I mean, honestly, <laughs> like you press this and a universe explodes, like that could be funny to someone. It's like alien jackass or something. Kind of. I mean, it's like, dude, if we send these things, they're just going to build an atom bomb. It's hysterical. You know, also speaking of that, earlier in the movie, the first thing they detect is this signal of prime numbers. And that is proof of intelligence, according to Dr. Arroway, which I understand. But the fact that like that makes international news of like, oh, we've discovered aliens because of the prime numbers. You know, this is before the Hitler thing and and the, the plans for the machine and everything. Like you can imagine the headline of like proof of intelligent life and then the sub headline of like what exactly are prime numbers anyway you know like i just kind of felt like would that really capture everyone's attention immediately i mean i think it would in that i don't know if you're aware of this but uh about a month ago there were ufo hearings at the u.s senate and there was some fascinating stuff not necessarily aliens but things that they're basically saying they are ufos these are unidentified flying objects they're definitely objects that were flying that are going in weird patterns that we can't identify right but Did you notice that uh, there were uh, several clips of then-President Bill Clinton in this film? Well, yes, of course I noticed. I was watching the movie. It was almost as if they had a cameo of him because he was saying very relevant things about it could be the most important discovery in the history of humanity. This was not like the dubbing over John Lennon on the, uh, what was it, the Kangaroo Show or whatever it was in Forrest Gump. This was real Bill Clinton uh, audio because it was based on something that did make a lot of hoopla back in the early mid-90s during Clinton's years. There was a meteor that was found on Earth, but it turns out that this meteor was from Mars. And it's very fantastic. Basically, an explosion on Mars. Eventually, this chip found its way to Earth. And the point was, in the 90s, someone looked at this under the electron microscope And it's never been conclusively said either way, but it looks like fossilized worms are on it. And this was made a big hoopla. It was the kind of thing that would make, you know, not the cover of Newsweek, but like the top bar on the cover of Newsweek, like Life on Mars, page 62. And Bill Clinton made a big uh, uh, press release about it. So that's what they spliced into this film. I thought that was very clever of of the filmmakers here. And apparently... It wasn't approved. And so there was a little bit of backlash because Robert Zemeckis and the producers and the filmmakers, they sent it to the White House. They notified the White House of their plans. They told them when the movie was going to come out. And so they did their part, but the White House never officially authorized it and never like signed off. And so then they kind of got their wrists slapped. And I don't think there was any like major consequence or anything, but, you know, Basically, Zemeckis's counterpoint was like, we gave you all the information. You didn't say yes. You guys are busy. We did it anyway. What are you going to do? And really, nothing terribly bad came from it. But while we're talking about the politics of it, I do also think, again, from a 2022 lens, there's no way the United States government would fund this. You know, honestly, even in a mid-90s way, The Republicans hated Bill Clinton. If they found out that they were going to have to invest, I think they say the machine costs half a trillion dollars or something like that. And, you know, the U.S. only pays some of it. 
But there's no way Republicans in the Senate would authorize that if there was a Democratic president. You know, I mean, like today, Mitch McConnell would filibuster the shit out of it. Or maybe if it's a budget thing, then you could do it through reconciliation and you wouldn't need to worry about having 60 votes. But either way, I feel like there would be a huge backlash of like, why are we spending hundreds of millions and billions of dollars for this machine to talk to aliens when we can't even afford blah, 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 education, healthcare, whatever. But you know that's a bullshit argument because then the next day they don't have no more money and then the next day there's $25 billion for a few more F-14s or, you know, whatever the plane is. Right. Uh, but if there was a Democratic president that was hell-bent against this, then I'll bet you the next Republicans campaign would be, America needs to build this. We need to be number one. And they would fund it no matter what. So I would say because... The other guy doesn't like it. We like it. So that's one possibility. But the other one is something very interesting in this film that it kind of glosses over. It winds up being an important plot point. But they say that there's a selection committee to pick from 10 people and only three are Americans. So presumably seven are non-Americans. You presume that these are like the G7 countries. But there was one G7 country that didn't uh, pursue a candidate and that was Japan. And do you remember what they said that they got in return? Uh, they got, like, mining rights or something? Something, something. They got some rights uh, to, to do something. And I would bet you that American companies, for exclusive rights to this, Apple, and I think these companies with billions in the war chest, I think they would take on that action. I think they absolutely would. Right. And in this movie, there is, like, a billionaire corporate guy named Haddon who does also fund this project and is really interested in this project. He kind of reminded me of Bezos and like, yeah, you could kind of see that. Along those lines, did you see Don't Look Up, the Netflix movie? Yes, I did. Spoiler alert for that movie. The corporation wants to have like exclusive mining rights for the comet or asteroid that's about to crash into Earth because it has like some precious metals or whatever. And that's believable. You know, like you could totally see that happening. And and I guess this movie does a version of that. Yeah, absolutely. So after the first machine is blown up by the Jake Busey character, uh, there's a scene where we find out that there's a second machine that was built in secret. And it has one of my favorite lines. I think in all movies, I just love this line. And Haddon explains to Arroway that they built a second machine and he goes, the first rule of government spending, why build one when you can build two for twice the price? Mm -hmm. I just love it. That is a good line. And then it's convenient because there is this other one. And even though Arroway is an atheist, which is disqualifying, she's also American. So that means she gets to go Screw you, other countries in the world. Ha ha ha. America wins. She goes into space through this machine. It like sends her through a wormhole and she meets the alien. And like Mr. Garrison said, it's her father. And well, it's not her father. They clearly say, we took this form. We thought this would be easier for you. You notice that she was on the beach from the picture in the beginning of the film. Right, Pensacola, Florida. And the waves don't move quite right, and there's some things that are wrong. And she's obviously inside the sphere because she can't move, like, a, a foot away from where she is. And she can feel all around her. There's an invisible sphere wall around her. Right. 
But it is weird because the alien, who is definitely not her father, says things like, I've missed you. Sorry I wasn't there for you. Ellie's too smart for them. So she immediately figures out what this is. Because you're right. The, the father goes, I've missed you, Sparks, which was his nickname for her when she was a kid. Yeah, she's crying and it's uh, emotional. But she immediately goes, oh, you downloaded my brainwaves and like this is what this is. And he goes, yeah, we thought this would be easier for you. So that's what happened. Had they sent some, uh, you know, non-scientist, uh, you know, I would say even her objectivism uh, was to her advantage here. Sure. So they send this other person and they say, oh, I've missed you so much. And then they're like, cool, so you're in a ghost. This is heaven, right? Like, then how do you say, oh, no, actually, I'm not your dead spouse, whatever. I actually am an alien. I feel like taking the form, I guess I can see, but then making that turn of the explanation just gets really complicated. And the first thing you've done is trick this new species that you're trying to communicate with. Well, what if it looks like one of these horrible, horrible xenomorphs, you know, dripping acid, terrifying? I mean, it's possible. What if they're microbes? You know, it could just be easier to just project something this person would understand and can speak to. Sure. But then they should say right out of the gate, hi, I look like your dead beloved parent. But you should understand that I am not your dead beloved parent. I am an alien called a Glipglorp or whatever it is. Actually, what they call the aliens, what the Earthlings call the aliens, is vegans because the planet is around the star Vega. And that's just kind of funny because now a vegan is someone who doesn't eat any animal products, of course. And I guess that word wasn't either a thing or wasn't common in 1997. But when they're like, well, you're thinking like an earthling. We need to think like a vegan. Like that just kind of made me chuckle because that just means something different 25 years later. Yeah. And I don't know if you noticed it, but the first time she goes in this wormhole, they make it to Vega. There is a big star, which is Vega. And then she goes into another wormhole because there's something earlier in the film where they say, we've been looking at Vega for years. We've never heard anything. And explain a little more in the book, but Vega was just like a way station. She's beamed to Vega and then she's beamed somewhere else. Like there's a whole network of these things. There's one point when she looks out over like a, a planet that seems to be lit up. So she just says, they're alive. And then she goes somewhere else. And it's very trippy. And it, you would imagine if someone is traveling faster than the speed of light, then it might affect their brain a little bit. Sure, sure. I get that. There's some space-time relativity things where you start hearing her say things that we eventually hear her say a minute or two later. I really like what they did with the, uh, the science of this. I don't know if it's accurate. All I know is that I'm sure Carl Sagan would have wanted it to be accurate. And he actually died during the filming of this movie. So it took so long to make. And he was apparently very adamant about the science of it being at least believable. I just thought it was a really cool scene. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then there's a scene where uh, Dr. Arroway is talking to Congress because the James Woods character, who was, you know, a little brash earlier, but now is like 
the evil arch nemesis at the end for some reason because he's running for Congress, I guess. It's a little bit weird. He's basically saying the whole thing was a hoax perpetrated by Haddon because the sphere that she was in, it like just basically went straight down into the net and she was gone for 18 hours. But for the observers on Earth, she blipped out for like maybe a fraction of a second. And so they don't believe that she did this. And it's a reversal where she's saying you have to take it on faith. And, you know, the scene uses a lot of the dialogue that came earlier and it's just her on the other side of it now. And James Woods ultimately doesn't believe her, but the world does. And it helps that Joss is like, I believe her. So that she has this stamp of approval from a guy who does have faith that validates what she's saying. One big difference with the book and, and the movie is that instead of just Dr. Arroway going, there are actually five people that go inside the probe and they travel to this beach. And then I don't remember if maybe they all experience it independently, but when they come back, there's basically no proof that they left because the same thing happens. None of their recording equipment works, blah, blah, blah. The only weird thing is that all of the astronauts had some sand between their toes when they took off their spacesuits because they all wore spacesuits, I think, in the novel. Not really much proof. And in the movie, they inserted a, a scene that's not in the book, and I loved this scene. It was very satisfying because there's a classified little, I guess you'd call it today, a Zoom meeting, but it was incredibly 1997, yeah. v- very high tech for the time. But um, it's James Woods and this other uh, character, and she is saying Dr. Arroway's camera only recorded static, but the probe fell for 10 seconds and it recorded 18 hours of static in that 10 seconds. So that's the meat for the viewers that this did happen. There's the proof. It's sort of a reverse of relativity because they always talk about special relativity in a lot of films and in this film, that if you were to travel faster than the speed of light and if your trip for you was like a day, everyone on Earth would age, you know, 100 years or something. That's what happened in a different uh, Matthew McConaughey movie. Interstellar. Exactly. Interstellar. Exactly. Great film. We'll we'll review that in, uh, I guess, 12 years or so, whenever. Sure. Um, And in this film, she's only gone for a fraction of a second on Earth time. But for her, she experienced it as 18 hours. So it's sort of a flip on that. Almost one of those, like, that shouldn't happen. Well, maybe we don't understand special relativity as much as we think we do. That's... Within science fiction, I think it's a like a little uh, a little game you could play. I think that's still hard sci-fi. That seems like it's allowed. But James, let me ask you now: Do you think that Contact, the movie, not the book, stands the test of time? You know, it's very interesting. This film, it's from a different world. The things that you say that are almost only a little bit glossed upon, which is the radical religious subplot and the neo-Nazis that would love Hitler, those would probably be the major plot points today. Another point I really liked in this film was the Tom Skerritt character. He is a real uh, all-American-looking guy. and he's, It's the mustache. It could be the mustache. But Arroway is the one who discovered it. He takes the credit. The White House is like, and we will now call upon the scientist who discovered the message. And she's literally ready to go up. And they're like, Dr. David Drummond. And they bring him up. And it's really realistic. And that's a very interesting subplot, too, that just are, are a little too much for a film that's already two and a half hours. So they didn't go into it. 
the science versus religion, they unfortunately pounded a little bit too hard because that's not what Carl Sagan was going for, in my opinion, in the novel. And I do think that at the end, they give Arroway some of that, ah, maybe it's more faith. But that could have used a little bit of exposition even, maybe even that little tour she gives to the students of just saying like, you know, we have no idea what's out there. And I would actually say this movie is pretty beautiful. I'm not going to say it's an amazing film because I think you were surprised when I said I've only seen this like this is maybe my fourth time seeing it. I was surprised. But, um, you know, this film is just not something you need to see over and over. I don't think I'm going to see this film again, probably for another 10 years. But it's just a beautiful film that I do think about this film fairly often. I just love the idea of this film. It's scientific, but it's not too, you know, aliens are going to change the world. It's not religion versus faith too much. I'm not surprised that this film did not make more than $100 million, and it made like $100 million exactly, which makes me think it made like 97 and they just let it peter on until, you know, they could have another $100 million was under their belt. People probably thought this was, you know, blow up aliens, Independence Day, and it's nothing like that. Like I said, it's a beautiful film. It's a nice film, and uh, I'm going to say it stands the test of time. What do you think, Al? Honestly, my biggest problem with the movie was the religion versus science thing being just hammered home too goddamn much. But overall, I did like this movie. I really enjoyed it. I think Jodie Foster is great. Robert Zemeckis does a good job with this movie. One random thing that doesn't stand the test of time when Dr. Arroway is giving her presentation to Haddon's company and, you know, she's like begging for money. Her presentation is like, paper, cardboard, whatever. Like a science fair. Yeah, like not a PowerPoint, uh, which doesn't make her look super scientific from a 2022 lens. Also, something that's neither here nor there, when she meets Haddon and he's like telling her her life story, first off, that whole scene is weird because it doesn't tell us, the audience, any new information that we don't already know. And it's like, you graduated first in your class and it like has a picture of her from the yearbook or whatever, which sure, this guy could have gotten. But then there's also like some home movies of her like playing with blocks when she's a little baby. It's like, where the fuck did this guy get that? Yes, he's a billionaire. He has access to all these things, but that kind of took me out of that scene. Whatever. These are very, very small details. I did like this movie. I enjoyed it. I do think it stands the test of time. I do kind of agree with you though, that like, do I need to see it again? Nah, not really. I know what it's going for and... Okay, I'm not going to be racing to watch it again. But it's a good movie. It does stand the test of time, even though there are some things that I think after two years of COVID, eh, I question. It's a good movie, and it's definitely worth watching. We didn't even mention the fact that this is episode 314, like Pi, and this movie has some math in it. You know, that's very interesting you say that because... Arroway is like, what do we do now? And the aliens are basically like, either we'll contact you or it's implied you'll discover something else and you'll figure it out. In the novel, there is an epilogue where eventually humans find some kind of pattern or meaning in the number pi. But it's interesting that this is episode 314. How about that? How appropriate. Indeed. Um, I think I might have asked you this before. Did you see The Book of Mormon? I have, yes. This movie kind of made me think about that only because 
the Book of Mormon, spoiler alert for anyone who doesn't want to know, it mocks the Mormon religion relentlessly for the entire runtime of the musical. And then at the end, it kind of surprises you by being sort of pro-religion. And this movie kind of does something similar where it's like, it's all science, 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 science is right. And then at the end, you're like, oh, but actually we are kind of pro-religion too. And, you know, it's just a little bit of a curveball, which I appreciated. And if you appreciate Jodie Foster, what do you think of a Jodie double feature Foster Friday uh, feature? (laughs) (laughs) I think it sounds fantastic. That's right. Next week, we're going to be talking about Flight Plan, another F. I love this alliteration. It's fun. Another movie starring Jodie Foster. I have never seen this one. But I'm looking forward to checking it out. I'm looking forward to discussing it with you next week. And I'm also looking forward to our listeners hearing about it. Indeed. And listeners, you know what I'm going to ask you to do. Write to us on social media at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Email us to testoftimepodcast at gmail.com. And Dr. Carl Sagan, you stand the test of time. Should we just say for Carl at the end of the podcast episode like the movie does? I'll dedicate this episode to Carl Sagan. Sure, fine. Bye, Carl, and everyone else. Bye.